In this episode of 9-2-Y Talks, Neil deGrasse Tyson discusses his new book, Letters from an Astrophysicist, with Radiolab host Robert Krolwich. Every year, Tyson receives thousands of letters from people across the globe who have sought him out in search of answers to questions about science, faith, philosophy, life, and of course, Pluto. His replies are by turns wise, funny, and mind-blowing. The conversation was recorded on October 11, 2019, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. My first question is, like, how, how, do you feel, as I do, that the, that the working conditions are different now? Yeah, I, I think it's the duty of an educator to have some sense of the landscape on which you're working. And times change, attitudes change, people's capacity, people's attention span changes. Uh, one of the big <laughs> pivotal moments in people's attention span was before this for old timers here, before MTV and after MTV, all right? MTV <laughs> showed images that lasted three seconds at most in videos. And so it, it just changed what people wanted to be delivered. So if you're not aware of that, then, then you, you become obsolete in place. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I actually have certain tactics that help me track where things are going. You mean when you step into a room or in front of a person or whatever? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And so, if, if I may? Yeah, yep. sure. Yeah. So, so uh, by the way, this, these tracking devices are, I mean, sometimes they'll hit a landmine, okay? Yeah. So, but it's, the intent is to avoid the landmines. So, here's how it works. I will post a tweet. This is in Twitter, okay? You all know Twitter because the president lives there, okay? <laughs> Whether or not you have anything to do with it, the president does. All right, so I have a Twitter account, and I have found, ever since I started using the account in this particular way, it is hugely informative, because the responses to what I post represent a neurosynaptic snapshot of a collective mind. So if I post something that I think is funny and no one replies in any way that resembles that it was funny, I say, it's not funny. Wait, 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 wait. What do you mean no one, like the, the, the Twitterverse doesn't laugh out loud. Yes, it does. Yeah. They'll, yes, it's called well, LOL. I mean. What, what? <laughs> <laughs> but I can't imagine that everybody goes LOL, 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 times 60,000. Well, it, it, okay. So I have... 13.5 million followers. So. Really? Yes. Don't yeah. applaud that. Oh, that's well. <laughs> what? There you are. I mean, so you have, but that's. No, no, no. But, but what that means is any fraction of that is a huge number, right? right. So, in a, so within three minutes of a post, there's hundreds of replies just flowing in flowing in. And if we had a, like a video screen or something, I would demonstrate that for you. Okay? So. But what are you, oh, go, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious, because you're going to parse this audience. Some of them are going to be laughing and some of them are not going to be laughing. And how do you know it's, the it's, difference? It's, it's, well, because they communicate this in the Twitter stream. And all I'm saying is, I have an idea. By the way, I don't wake up in the morning and say, what am I going to tweet today? That is not what happens. <laughs> what happens is I just have thoughts. 
okay? So one of them was, one of my early tweets when I finally figured out what I should be tweeting, rather than where I am or what I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> the tweet was, if humans had copper instead of iron in the sort of hemoglobin of the blood, turning our blood green, then what color would the stoplight be? <laughs> that was just a thought I had, and I said, I should tweet that. What color would the stoplight right, be? Right, the stoplight's red. Your blood is red. Red is bad, you stop. Green is nature, and you go. That, that, that is this, that's, where, that's where these colors come from, okay? So... Green is also vomit, but I'm not just saying. Really? Green is also... What were you eating? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, you've assigned value, I mean, and red is true as blue. Okay, I, I'm just saying, if your blood were green, I'm wondering how they would have thought about the stoplights. That's, it's, it's just, it's, okay. it's, it's an open question. Yes. That's all it is. It's, and, you, and you watch this I rush of reactions. I watch the replies, and are people saying, what do you mean? I don't understand. Are they saying that? Are they saying, wow, mind blown, I should think about that too. And if the, if the ratio of mind blown to, I don't know what you're saying, <laughs> is high, then that can go into my canon of communication. Interesting. And if I think something is funny, like, never trust atoms. Because they make up everything. Okay? So. That's just if, good. If people come in and say, dad joke alert, or whatever. <laughs> so, um, then there are people interpreting words I've used that I didn't know that that's how you'd interpret it. I didn't, uh, uh, for example. For example. Um, I, made a, I made a comment about living in a country where you have free access to guns and you have crazy people, okay? Yes. Okay. The replies were... That's in the book. The, uh, no, it's a different oh, gun. Different comment. Okay. So the replies were, that's, <clears throat> that's ableist. That was my first encounter with that word. I had to look it up. Hmm. I didn't know what that meant. That's, so people, ableist is like if you're racist, sexist, ableist, if you didn't know the word the way I didn't know the word, it means you're saying something that is... Makes fun of people who aren't able yeah, yeah, to do something. Makes fun of or does not, that have some disability, right. okay? 100% of the replies that said it was insensitive did not use the word crazy. They said mentally ill. They said, I'm mentally ill, and I am not putting you in danger. In fact, most mentally ill are people, most people who are mentally ill comprise a less dangerous part of the uh, segment of the population than the population at large. Okay. No one used the word crazy back with me. Were you expecting them to? Yes, because I used the word crazy. Mm. And crazy is... Some people are crazy, right? The, and, and you can, so what- Is this a function of just to- What he told me, I'm, oh. just, I'm telling you, this is the education of Neil deGrasse Tyson. Right. I'm saying this word crazy has been removed from the language. I can't use this word to just refer to just a crazy person. It's because 
the community of people who are mentally ill in some, by some clinical definition, are, they have occupied the space entirely that would include who you previously would have just called crazy. And, nope. so, and so the word crazy doesn't have the, 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 the currency of vocabulary in that niche that it used to accommodate. So I stopped using the word crazy. And, and now I don't reference it that way. I learned in that moment. And, and so, 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 that's, it, so that's an example of noticing that a landscape has changed. There was a day crazy, you had a crazy person in your class, or mm -hmm. somebody, your uncle was crazy. And this was just a thing, right? It's not a thing anymore. And, and, I, and I, had to, I learned that. And do you feel like it's because you're older now that you don't know what the street, I guess you would say, or the younger folks are now feeling about this? Because I, I run into this too. I think everybody our age, or I'm a little older than you, but everybody runs into this that you learn over time. Like part of you says, oh, come on. When I was your age, I would say bleh and bleh and bleh, and it would roll off my back. Because, like, just suck it up. That's how you live in this world. People are not going to be perfected, and you're just going to have to learn to take these words. And another part of you thinks, oh, you've lived your whole life being a little bit insulted, a little bit wounded, a little bit hurt all the time. And you're sending me this notice, like, if you use that word, you're hurting me. You don't know it now, but now from now on you do know it. Yeah. And you're just supposed to, you, you're just supposed to be kinder. Well, I, I, but it's, I find that I do encounter a lot of people in a lot of situations, and I have two kids who are like the right age to be woke about things, and I check with them. See, even me using the word woke. Yes, I'm very self-conscious. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so all I'm saying is, no, I, I, I'm so exposed, given how many times I've interviewed in the press and how many times I give public talks and and in Q&A that I, I think I have some, and, and with my, my social media stream, I think I have some finger on some pulses out there, but I can't ever presume that it's total. And occasionally, I didn't tell you all the ones where I nailed it, okay? I didn't give you that one, okay? Uh -huh. it's a lot of my, it, it's nailed, I said, good, I'm keeping that in the repertoire, it's gonna go in my next talk. That happens more times than this opposite one. I reached for this to tell you that I had never seen or heard that word before in all of my How circles. many times a year do you find yourself sort of suddenly thrown, I mean, you had a, you've had a really rough year. We'll get to that in a second. But putting that aside, how many times in a, in a year do you think, do you say something, there's a sort of dark kind of quality around, like the world goes, hmm. And then you think, all right, I'm time to correct and learn. I yeah, get that now. That's the wrong Twice question. A year? Oh, no, it's not. It's the wrong question. I'll tell you why. Okay. Um, <laughs> it'll that okay. I'll answer it, but I'll tell you why it's the wrong question. It'll happen between two and ten times a year. Hmm. Let's say five times, once every couple of months. Mm -hmm. That's after I had said tens of thousands of things. Hmm. So it's not for me. It's not the total. It's what is the fraction of my total portfolio of communication that ends up having been susceptible to that? And I'm happy to report it's really low because I care. And I don't have the attitude that you shared here. I think you even implied that I had the attitude. When I was your rage, we sucked it up. No, I don't think that. I, it's not. <laughs> 
get off my lawn. I don't, you know, I'm not the guy in the wheelchair, uh, I mean, in the rocking chair up front. I don't know how you avoid, I mean, I don't see how anybody can get older and not look over their shoulder at what they grew up with and be a little bit surprised that the world is different. It's the job of, a, of, of aging gracefully, it seems to me, or aging morally, to keep learning from your surroundings about what it is you're doing. Yes. There's a certain amount of blindness when you grow up in a particular space with a particular set of circumstances, and you learn to I grew to up in New York City. How yeah, blind is that? That's not a yeah, blind no. place. That's it's true. But that even makes it harder, because like things that were said to kids in New York City, you know, those are pretty rough things. So there's a line in Desiderata, which I don't know if you remember, old-timers might remember it. It's, take kindly the counsel of the years, gracefully surrendering the things of youth. And that applies in a lot of contexts, including how you communicate, what you say, how you say it. And <clears throat> part of that in the book, you didn't bring out a copy of the book? I thought I would, I kept it in my coat. But everybody gets a copy of, oh, did you bring, oh, well. <laughs> I wonder what that was in my back pocket. So You've been sitting on that this yeah. whole time? Just in case you didn't deliver it, I pull it out. <laughs> So Talk about learning gracefully, like that was very smartly done. That's right. You got to like plan. Yes. Situational awareness, mm -hmm. as the military says. So, so, in the letters as they come in, thank you for noticing that the interaction function varies depending on who's asking it and how they're asking it. So, for every letter, there is I'm assessing where are they coming from, what is their mental state. That is, are they angry? Are they happy? Are they, uh, do they want to fight? Do they really want to learn? What words are they using? That gives me a sense of their literacy, how they're composing sentences. So this is an entire profile of the person that informs how I reply, what words I use, but how long my sentences are. That's not always available to you. Like you're in a room where you can't see a soul here. It's a dark space from where we sit. It's just, there's a couple of heads up front, and otherwise there's just some half dim bulbs over there. So you don't know who Are you talking about people, or are you talking about light bulbs? Well, <laughs> you can't, like, so right now, as you sit here in front of this group, you know it's But just speaking of light bulb, I gotta tell you, oh. there's a friend of mine who, a professional science comedian. Yeah. There's such a thing. There's such a thing. His Twitter handle is science comedian. Okay, okay. one of his jokes, and how often do you, know who invented a joke, like never, right? He invented this joke. The light bulb was such a good idea, it became the symbol for a good idea. <laughs> the light bulb goes on. <laughs> and anyway, okay. you were talking about the dim bulbs up there. Yes, yeah, so how do, you know, how do you make decisions about the, these people's um, attention span? or these people coming here to either laugh or to stare at you sullenly, or their vocabulary. You can't see them, they haven't said anything yet. I was referring entirely to the letters I received. Okay. It's, it, it's completely different, it's tactically different when I'm interacting with a live audience. Okay. So when I give a public, if not, I can go there, but when I give a public talk, oh by the way, I don't always know everything I can, but I know more than I otherwise would by analyzing letters in the way that I described. Okay, so that puts me in a slightly better place to communicate than just looking at words on a page and what their dictionary definitions mean. Well, let me ask so, you so about let me do the, the, the audience thing. Okay. So when I give a public talk, 
in some town I've never been in, or even if I have, uh, when I arrive in the town, I buy the local paper. And I see what's, or read the local news. And I see what the buzz is, what's in the letters to the editor. Is there some water shortage or a power outage or is there some tension, be it racial or gender related or whatever. So I have some landscape to stand on before I communicate. Then I spend the first 10 minutes testing their humor level and their political leanings. So I will say something that depending on how loudly they react to that statement, it cues me into what I'm able to say later. So that tweet remark and the reference to the senior executive in the US government was a ploy. You were wondering, you said there was a guy who tweets and then there was a noise or something from this group and you measured it. Yes, yes, and that informs not the astrophysical content that I communicate, it informs the packaging of that content. What words I use, how I lean, also the, the age demographic in the room. I'll check to see if there's a lot of silver hair folk mm -hmm. that are older. I, it gives me more historical latitude to talk about things in the past. You can't see hair here. No, I, I, I didn't light this place. <laughs> but when I am giving a talk, I have full control. Right, so before I come out, I say, put just enough light so I can see, and enough light to see if people fall asleep. And one way you know if people fall asleep, you give them your best joke and no one laughs, they're all asleep. <laughs> well, let me ask you about some puzzlers here in the book. Somebody writes you that they are convinced that they saw a star, they write with you, with little orange dashes all around it. And they said, you know, um, I really believe that I saw this, it seemed like, Maybe it was a multiple meteor shower coming in on a star or something. I don't know. I know I saw it. And you go to an anatomical part of the, of the letter writer. Could you explain what happened there? Oh, I think my first, because they said the, uh, it was a, a light in the sky that had, that had streaks coming from it. Yes. And so what was it? Was it a meteor shower? Could it have been a UFO or something? So I first asked, how long are your eyelashes? That is such a weird reaction, really. No, because have you ever come out of the shower oh, and you have droplets of water on your eyelashes and you look at point sources of light? They become highly radiant. So <laughs> I'm checking to rule out whether that was a possibility. What do you suppose this letter writer who is convinced she had a miraculous experience and gets a letter back from this eminent man thing, do you have water dropping off your eyelashes? <laughs> When people see things they can't explain, that they want to chalk up to either divinity or to aliens or to, generally there's a more mundane explanation for it. And, and you were it is my one. duty to highlight other things it could be before you say we're being visited by aliens from another planet. There's a, there's a hierarchy of these how about this one? A person who loves astrology and writes you a letter simply saying she doesn't understand why you aren't as enthusiastic about astrology as she is. And she cites, you know, and this is a quote, you know how great the Egyptians were and they studied astrology. And your answer, I'm going to read it because it's, you want to answer? You want to, well, maybe you can. I, I, I can. You got it? Read, read your answer. Give me a second. I got to put on my, my old people glasses uh, here. It's, Does that uh, offend old people? Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm about two-thirds gray, but it, I tinted because 
It reflects weirdly, and it's very mangy in how it's coming in. So it looks like really, I have some kind of really disease. You th that is such an interesting condition. If it was coming in more uniformly, I'd, I'd do it, but it's coming in like, like, uh -huh. like I have some kind of mange or something. <laughs> <laughs> so which one is this now we're talking about? If you wish to go back 5,000 years to site behavior you wish to emulate, consider some baggage. Oh, 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 oh yeah. that way, okay, so that yes. one. Uh, begins with did, the did you write down the title of that one? Uh, I, I have it in my notes, but I didn't, I didn't think you, I was, I thought I was going to read it. It'll take me longer to find it. All right, I'll read it. Do you have the answer there? I'll read it yeah. from there. Okay. Here. Give me. This page? Yeah, I tried it there. In this okay. Page. Here it goes. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> okay. And that person ends in an astrology enthusiast. You know how great the Egyptians were, and they studied astrology. Right. My reply. Oh, yes. If you wish to go back 5,000 years to cite behavior you wish to emulate, consider some other baggage that comes with it. We're talking about the Egyptian. The worship of cats, the divinity of pharaohs, the obsession with expensive overbuilt triangular tombstones. Aztecs? Time to rip the pulsing heart out of virgins to appease the gods. Time to eat the flesh of those you conquer to make you stronger. Oh, and why not die of disease and pestilence before you turn 40? <laughs> now, I'm thinking this is just a whack. This lady who just loves astrology and then sends you this, like, this valentine to astrology. Don't go back 5,000 years and praise a civilization relative to today. I'm not going with you on that. <laughs> I'm not giving you that. Here's another one. I, I'm going to say, I, I can make a stronger statement. Yeah. There's all this talk about, like, we had a time machine. Let's go back in time, okay? Like, that, would, that would, is an excellent idea if you're a white male. <laughs> you can go back at any time and you'll fit right in, okay? <laughs> if you're a female or black, there is no time in the past <laughs> where anything is better, okay? <laughs> on the other hand, some guy Just writes- On the other hand well, to that I mean, sentence? Because, there's a, because this is fascinating to me. You okay. change your tone and, and you, you're always just a little bit surprising. Some guy writes you about the Dogon people from Africa. Dogon, yeah. the Dogon tribes. A lot and he says, about oh, them. these people have, I believe that they actually predicted a, uh, that there's a binary star, there's two stars that are kind of traveling close around each other, before the confirmation of by telescopes by white people. So these were Dogon tribe in Mali in Africa. Yes. And you write. Worship the star Sirius mm -hmm. in the sky, as did the Egyptians, by the yep. way. And in their culture, when an anthropologist came upon them, a Europe, European anthropologist, they noticed that there was a description of a second star orbiting around Sirius with the right orbital time that had been discovered by Europeans some years earlier. So they were surprised and shocked that they would have this kind of intimate knowledge of something that required a telescope to find. So there's like the Dogonophiles out there, the ones who want the Dogon to have some special access to knowledge mm -hmm. beyond what was otherwise available given their culture. So pick up. So I was expecting you to write back, what an interesting thought, and wouldn't it be nice, and but you don't do that. 
You don't do that at all. You, the same way you whack the astrology lady, you whack the Dogon person. I, I maybe is whack it written, isn't quite. Is it written the, there? No, I didn't actually write. Oh, well, let's see. Oh yes, I do. I wrote. Dogon I, people. I can read it. It's very short. Was it this short? No, I sh made it shorter. Well, no, it's very me, hard me, to do with you yeah, reading my notes. Let me get the thing. Okay, I okay, we can wait it. We can wait it out. Talk, talk among yes, yourselves. Yes, I'll talk among yourselves. <laughs> 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 what was the title? What was the title was, of that one? Uh, I don't know. It was called. Af I don't know what you called the title of it. Okay. Just uh, I'm going through these topics here. Uh, uh, while you're doing that, yeah. I, I, this is this is the. Uh, when some, a Texas, a prisoner in Texas writes and says, how do you, he's asking my questions, how do you do this? Like, how do you take a measure of your audience? And he makes a little list, this is Neil does. He says, I'm interested in the attention span, which I guess that means how long can I go on or how long will you be able to listen? I'm aware of vocabulary. I kind of sense what words you know and what words you don't, and I'm not gonna use the words you don't know. I'm interested in the demographics of the audience, so I'm keen, as he just said. Well, that's the whole reply. Yeah, I'll read yeah, that. Yeah. Give me, give me, give well, me. No, but I didn't. I just, I just summarized. Oh, it. summarize. Okay. You fine. can't do this. You can't summarize my letters. <laughs> They're carefully composed with words in certain places with a rhythm to them. That's true. Ooh, you can't get a Reader's Digest. Well, all right. Of why my don't letter? you do, do the do the Jewish one? Because we're 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 here on Ninety Second Street. He has this lady. She's an Orthodox Jew. <laughs> well, come on. You're here on Ninety Second Street. There's a few Jews in the room. Like I'm here. So. He has an Orthodox Jew. I, I got it. Here, here yeah, we go. Okay. okay. Let, let's this is get. another one. Okay. It's on the. Uh, it's in the parenting chapter. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. So you guys ready? You ready for this? You've confirmed that there are a few Jews in the room. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Well, at least one. <laughs> with a new grandson. Plus the other grandson. Three. Yeah. We applaud Jews. That's good. All right. I. I I'm. Going to take the time to read this only because my res my reply took an entire year to just figure out the landscape I was stepping into. Okay. Hmm. Okay. I just need to know how many people here are Jewish or Jewish tradition raised. Three, so we can see. We can't okay. see anything here. I can, they're not going to be able to tell us. Yeah. Okay. Here it is. Ready. Sunday, February twenty sixth, two thousand seventeen. Dear Dr. Tyson, I wanted to send you a note because I'm having a discussion with my 10-year-old son. We've been doing what generations before me have done, sending my child to Hebrew school. We send him so he can learn about his religion and where he comes from. However, my son, who, by the way, is on the autism spectrum, said to me last night that Hebrew school is ridiculous. <laughs> because he does not believe in God, G-D. These are all cues right. of her orthodoxy. Yep. Okay. Because if you're really orthodox, you can't utter God's God. name. You can't even say it. He believes in science. He believes that the Bible stories just cannot be true. And the truth is, I can't deny that he might just absolutely be right. When I asked where he got a lot of his ideas, he said, Cosmos. <laughs> so I know he believes and respects what you teach, and I thank you for that. My question is, are both possible? 
Do you think there might be a higher power out there or that science and faith can find common ground? I ask because I respect my son enough for him to have his beliefs, and I don't want to impose anything on him that cannot be proven to be true. I know you're a busy man, but I'm working on being a good parent. I'm so thankful for you taking time to read this. Sincerely, Ingrid. So, yeah, what so, is, so first it's like, it's, it's Judaism, year. it's autism, it's parenting, it's all of this wrapped into one, and I, I tried to punt it, okay? So I tried. I sent. A, I sent. I said. I said to Andrewian, who is, who is a, a Jewish. She's really a Jewish atheist, but she's Jewish. But and she's she was married to a very mar married to. She was the widow of Carl Sagan, co-wrote the original Cosmos and the second Cosmos and the third. Brilliant woman, one of the most enlightened people I know. Sent her the letter. I said, you got to take this because wh where am I? Oh, you have consultants. Well, no, well, well, well sh she is co-author of Cosmos. Who, but that's what, so, she so, didn't get the letter, you got the letter. No, she would take it and she would sign the letter, right? It wouldn't be signing for me, she would sign the letter. So, but she said she was too busy. Okay. I don't understand what you just said. A lady writes you about her son, a charming letter, and you're gonna give it off to some other lady in Ithaca, New York, and she's gonna send the letter back? That the woman who wrote most of the words that came out of my mouth in Cosmos. Oh. Really? Yes. So I figured you don't write the words that come out of your mouth on Cosmos. She's Jewish, so I'm thinking. <laughs> I so don't know where she, we are. So in this conversation. she punted it back to me. Okay. Here it goes. You all seated? Yeah, you're seated. Okay. That's the way they're supposed to be seated. This is okay. the theater. The letter came in February 26, 2017. My reply, Friday, March 30th, 2018. Passover. <laughs> Dear Ingrid, an embarrassingly belated reply to your thoughtful email. The universe has been keeping me quite busy lately, but I do get to all my emails eventually. Of course, in a free country within limits, you can raise your child how you please on whatever belief system you choose. For this reason, most people in the world who are religious practice the religion of their parents. For example, the chances of Christians raising a child who later becomes Muslim or, or a Muslim family raising a child who later becomes Jewish are extremely rare. The children will more likely grow up believing in no gods than in the gods of other religions. So the urge to raise your son as a devout practicing Jew, being one yourself, is entirely normal and natural. But of course, you have at most only 18 years of direct influence on him. Your son will spend more than 80% of his life under a different roof than you. From what I have seen and encountered, Judaism manifests across a huge range of practices. From emboldened Jews who enthusiastically eat bacon, <laughs> to the various sects of Orthodox Jews who, among other practices, maintain separate kitchen utensils for dairy and for meat. As a scientist, I have much more experience with atheist Jews. They do not view the Torah as the word of God. They see it as a book of stories, not to be judged for their truth or falsehood, 
but as a repository of insights from which wisdom for living one's life can be derived. Think about it. When we read fairy tales, we're not judging them for whether or not they're true. Instead, we fold lessons derived from them into our worldviews. Not only this, atheist Jews will commonly celebrate the high holidays with no less ritual than practicing Jews, right on down to leaving an open seat at the Seder table for Elijah and making sure the front door is unlocked so he can just walk right in if he happens to show up. Why would an atheist Jew do this? The answer is not hard. Rituals and traditions account for some of the strongest binding forces among peoples of the world. Attending mass on Sundays for Catholics, prayer five times a day for Muslims, ancestor worship for the animist religions. One can participate without judging whether the events that establish the ritual have any literal truth at all. The participation creates a sense of community which has almost always contributed value to civilization. It disrupts civilization only when people require that others share their per particular rituals with threat of force to achieve it. Being on the spectrum and liking science as he does, your best bet might be not to enforce the literalism of anything religious, but to keep him plugged into the beautiful traditions of the religion and emphasize the value of ritual as a seed and taproot of community. Often that alone represents the greatest challenge when raising autistic children, getting them to embrace the value of love and compassion for people and for relationships. Rest assured that you can raise a wholesome, intelligent, law-abiding child without requiring he believes that Moses turned a staff into a snake or that manna fell from heaven. Good luck, in my experience, it takes some of that, too. Happy Passover to you both. Mm. I should get on with the questions that the audience has brought up, but, I, but before I do, just, just to go back to that letter. So that took you a year. A year to just figure out what to do with it. Yeah. And, and you know, I stepped towards it, and I stepped back away. I do a lot of reading on religion and religious rituals just because I get asked these questions, not because I deeply previously cared. I ended up caring because others cared who cared about what my response would be. So, so that's, that's where I was wondering, like as you become more famous and your audience grows and your words carry a little bit more weight in spite of you, <laughs> um, <laughs> does that does that make you more nervous or more graceful? Does practice ever make perfect in this business of talking to people? I, it means I grow my library of stuff I ever dare talk about in a reply to a, in a letter. You've grown it. Oh yeah, continually. I have shelves of religious books. I have shelves of books on UFOs because there's a huge community of people out there who believe you've been visited by aliens, and if I'm gonna interact with the public, I wanna know what makes them tick. I wanna know what brain wiring exists within them. If they're a conspiracy theorist, I wanna know where they're coming from. As an educator, if I'm gonna try to, like take flat earthers for example, if I'm gonna try to get in there and, and influence in a way that brings people closer to objective truths, if I'm not doing what I'm telling you I'm doing, I might as well just sit down and lecture. 
and whether or not you get it wouldn't matter because I'm just lecturing and that's my message no matter who's in the audience. And there's a moment in this book where But there's a con if you're an educator, there's a contract between you and the audience. And that contract is, I care how you think. And I'm going to shape information that can best match your receptors for learning. If, if you don't do that, why, sit down. Mm -hmm. Go take up another profession. Mm -hmm. My father always told me, um, lost him a couple of years ago, he was 89. Um, in fact, uh, my eulogy to him, written in the form of a letter to him, is in here. The book ends with that. Yes, it does. As a, um, reflecting on elements of his life that have deeply influenced my life. And one of the things he said, because he taught for a while before he entered city government, he was a, a new... I'm very proud to say that I, one of my earliest jobs was delivering your dad lunch. I did not know. You told me. I think yes. I forgot that. Yes. Him and another guy. There was a kosher guy named Bob Price who worked for Mayor Lindsay, and he wanted a steak from Fine and Shapiro on 72nd Street, and your dad had a some tuna salad sandwich. He, he wasn't kosher. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I had to go yeah. get I had to go get something for one and something for the other. And they were both commissioners. Your dad was a, was important. Yeah, he was a commissioner under Mayor Lindsay yeah. during like most. And I was a delivery boy under years. Mayor Lindsay. Way under Mayor Lindsay, but wow, I was yeah. Okay. All right. Anyway, thanks for feeding him. Yeah. <laughs> no, but in the time that he taught, he said this, and I was kind of young to appreciate it, a little too young, but it stayed with me. It was everyone, um, everyone can learn. You just have to find the key that unlocks their learning box, okay? And I said, I, I was a very literal kid, so it wasn't an actual, I didn't, you know, I was nine or something, I didn't get it. Later on, I came to understand. If you're going to communicate, you have to know how to open up all the ways the person can receive information, and that's your task. And yeah, it could be 30 different people, then do it for 30 different people. Otherwise, take up another job. Well, let me, let me quickly just visit the, the, the big, un, the, the, the ghost in the house, or whatever it is. You spent the last year, you had been accused of some sexual stuff by three different women, and, and that has now been resolved, but I'm just wondering, um, you're allowed to continue to do what you do, and, and, uh, and that is now, I suppose, a, a somewhat settled question, but I'm wondering, what did you, what, you spent a year on Tinderhooks, so you were, you talk about thinking about what everybody that you're talking to knows so that you can talk to them. I'm just now curious, you were talked about, and talked about, and thought about, and wondered about by a lot of people. And there you were, sitting quietly by yourself. What was that, wh what did you learn from that? Or what was that like? Yeah, I mean, my, uh, first, I, I learned that I valued the love of family and friends and even that of the fan base who was sort of with me the whole time. And uh, something I, it's easy to take for granted, they're just out there, but when, I, I made early statements regarding um, just the, the value and importance of due process and establishing what is objectively true because it's easy, it's, it's even natural, I think, for people to just have their own conclusions based on whatever information they confront, however partial that information is. We all do that, it's, very, it's a natural thing. But if that's how the world were adjudicated, there wouldn't be civilization. 
So due process is something that I came to appreciate that much more. It's not just some random element of what we call culture and life and civilization. It is a fundamental part of what makes anything work in this world. So uh, I came to value that when, it, when it's conducted seriously and with all due um, um, intensity mm -hmm. that any situation requires or you'd expect for it. So uh, the, the investigations were completed um, and uh, all duties were resumed and uh, enabled me to get back to my, my tasks, some of which had been put on hold. One of which was completing this book, which mm -hmm. um, had been in contract for about a year and a half before. So, so that, that, that was my year. That's why I'm here now, just back out. Yeah. All right, let yeah. me. Let oh, me, thank um, you. Thank you. We have a lot of questions, so I'm going to kind of maybe just keep your answers as quick as you can, because I don't. I want can go into soundbite mode, but that's a different mode of communication than letter writing. I just want to make it clear. That's right. Okay. I can do soundbites because I first see. met this. He found me when he was a correspondent for ABC News, and he interviewed me. And by then, I'd already sort of honed many of my soundbiting abilities. And so we go back. We do. My, <laughs> my early days as director at the Hayden Planetarium. Uh, what do you think about nuclear energy as a solution to the climate crisis? So nuclear energy, it's one of these things where everyone is afraid of it until oil goes, until your gallon of gas hits $12, 12 a gallon. Then all of a sudden, alternative means of producing energy, or your, your electric bill goes up, alternative means of producing energy start looking more attractive, and your risk equation changes mm -hmm. regarding that. So uh, it's back there. Nuclear energy is one of the two N-words you're not supposed to use in modern culture. So it w I think it'll take an economic force to have people warm up to that concept. Europe has been comfortable with that. I noticed for a in the time. New York March with a lot of those kids from school, there was a lot. There were a lot of signs that saying, were saying a smaller, safer, safer nuclear reactor, at least to 15, 16, 17 year old high school students, was poster worthy. They were for it. Interesting. I was yeah. sort of surprised. That, that's an example. It. So yes, you want to make them as safe as you possibly can, mm -hmm. and there you have it. The, pro the problem is we we don't react uniformly to to statistics, and uh, by the way, I don't know if people know, statistics is a very late invented branch of mathematics. We had algebra, we had calculus before we had statistics. And so... Statistics being a discipline. Not a, like a discipline. How many children do you have, Miss Woman? I've got well, that's, five. That's counting, that's not statistics. Oh, okay. Statistics would be, what's the average weight of your five cave, cave children? Okay. Okay? okay. Probably three of the five would have died in childbirth. So... <laughs> They've been lighter. They would have been lighter, yes. So what are averages, what are distributions, what are all of this that are powerful tools in modern science and in the analysis of everything. So, so. Let me interrupt with Haley's question. Hi, Neil. <coughs> she has an opening, a, a valedict, uh, 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 hello. Hypothetically speaking, if you were able to speak on the phone with an alien in English, what three questions would you ask? And you is the man. That's just <laughs> Thank you. Uh, uh, first question, can you come visit? I want to see you. I want to touch you. I want to analyze you in person. That's the first question. Hmm. Second, I'm going to show you what we know on our frontier of science. What can you add to it? 
that might then improve our understanding of our own world. Three, I'd give a list of problems we're encountering. Do they have ready-made solutions? Have they encountered these problems before? So they'd all be an attempt to improve civilization because if they're an alien and they can speak English, they're way smarter than any of us are. <laughs> I'm surprised you don't have the last question first because what if the phone got disconnected? You'd want to know the, you know the useful stuff. But anyway, this what one. disconnected? Well. What, what era are you living in? <laughs> when someone will hang up the phone? I would think with the that thing? An That's not how phones phone, work today. <laughs> an alien on the phone would be a chancy telephone call. That's all I'm saying. It's the alien. I'm not going to. Probably it'll be telepathically sent to my head. Oh, okay. Then I could call my, my iPhone. I believe that Haley said, oh, no, she didn't say on. Oh, yes, she said on the phone. I'm just being Haley for you there. Okay, mine. Thank you. Uh, do black holes contain wormholes or are wormholes completely hypothetical? Uh, wormholes are mathematically sound, come right out of Einstein, well not right out, it took smart people to have to figure this out. They derive from Einstein's general theory of relativity for the curvature of space and time. And wormholes would enable you to get from one place in the universe to the other, in the galaxy to the other instantly. And because you fold the fabric of space, cut a hole, and you go across that bridge, whereas you otherwise would have had to have gone this route. So I was in Charlotte, Airport, North Carolina, I had to go from a big plane to a little plane. And these are in two vastly separated parts of the airport. And I had luggage that didn't have wheels. It was like a large garment bag. And I'm just slugging this through the airport. And I say, I hate this. I swear I walked three miles, but it was probably only one mile. I get to the gate and I thought I'd be clever because I had this thought. I tweeted, I can't wait for wormholes. That way all gates will be adjacent to each other. <laughs> okay, then... It doesn't really help you get to the plane to stop mid-stride, tweet 60 billion people, I, and I'd say 13 million, but that then it was probably 4 million. But, but, one thing that is true in the geekiverse, however geeky you are, there is someone geekier than you, okay? <laughs> so, in re response to this tweet, someone said, Dr. Tyson, if we have wormholes, you don't need airports. <laughs> it was like, whoa! <laughs> the most important link between astrophysics and biology is... Uncompleted sentence. I would word that differently and say, it's just an accident of educational systems that we have siloed the branches of science and we take them and learn from them from distinguished uh, uh, textbooks that are distinguished from each other. A biology textbook, a chemistry textbook, all of this. That is our organization of nature, who itself does not do that. And let me tell you, in what way it doesn't do it. When you want to know the chemistry of biology or the biology of chemistry, we had to invent a, a stapled together word with, we have a field called biochemistry. That's evidence that nature is not only chemistry or only biology. We have astroparticle physics. We have astrobiology. We have geobiology. What is that? There's life forms thriving deep in Earth's crust, affecting the crust itself. The interplay of the the crust. branches of science is something that we make great advances in only when we broke down the barriers between those fields. 
And what you need is a funding strategy to encourage people to go there and, and have in the put, a, put a, a linked coffee lounge between these two departments and watch what unfolds. Hmm. Magic and beauty rolls out of those collaborations. So it's not what is the astrophysics and biology, it's all nature from Earth to the edge of the universe and back. Are white holes, are white holes, hmm, white holes. It, it's a thing. Are I purely got a product of science. <laughs> <laughs> I just have never seen that. Are white I, I got holes this one. Okay. okay. Are white holes purely a product of science fiction or do they really exist? What are they for one thing? Okay, so if you look at the mathematics of black holes, in one of the equations, there's a term that has two solutions. It's not fundamentally different from asking, okay, what's three times three? Well, it's nine. Then you ask, well, what's the square root of nine? Then you say three. That undoes the square that you, you just did. But what is minus three times minus three? The minuses cancel out. You get plus nine. Mm -hmm. So when I ask you what's the square root of nine, it has two answers, three and negative three. Three times three is nine, negative three is nine. Two completely legitimate solutions, mathematically uh, uh, legit. So the black hole solution has two solutions. The, the, the curvature of space-time that gives you a black hole has two solutions. One of them sucks in everything. The other one ejects everything. Really? And, it's, and we called it a, a white hole. And so when that came out of the equations, this is the late 60s, early 70s, we said maybe these bright quasars at the edge of the universe are white holes. And maybe a white hole is connected to a black hole via a wormhole. Oh, a hole in a hole in a hole. A hole. So, so the black hole sucks everything in. Where does it go? Comes out the white hole. It was very philosophically pleasing. <laughs> we looked across the universe and couldn't find any. At all. So even though it was mathematically legit, nature is the ultimate judge, jury, and executioner of your idea, and there are no white holes in the universe, so we stopped looking. Uh, this next question. I think from perhaps a policewoman, I'm not sure, a policeman. How many people were involved? The word is officer, police officer. A oh, police officer. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and I'm not even sure this is just, this seems like a, a prosecutorial question. How many people were involved in the Pluto decision? Question mark. <laughs> I believe this person has arrests in mind, I'm not sure. So there are two letters in here regarding Pluto. Mm. One of them is from a 22-year-old young man who apologizes, deadpan letter, apologize, dear Dr. Tyson, uh, I may have hurt your feelings 12 years ago when I was 10. When I learned you had demoted Pluto, uh, I called you a big poo-poo head. <laughs> I want to apologize if I'd hurt your feelings. I now agree with your decision sincerely. Oh, wow. Straight yeah. letter, a big poo-poo head. There's another letter from a fourth uh, This grade. is a fascinating letter to me. Like when you opened the letter and read the letter, did you think what an unusual journey this man has, or woman has been on? Yeah, it was, it was, it was a man, a young, young man. It was, so I, may, you must know maybe that I was implicated in the demotion of Pluto and I became hated by elementary school children worldwide <laughs> when that happened, who had just freshly memorized the sequence of planets. 
You know, I, I had letters that said, no, not in here, letters that said, Dr. Tyson, I just memorized my very educated mother just served us nine pizzas. Now without Pluto, now what has my mother served us? How am I going <laughs> to? And I said, my very educated mother just served us nachos. You're done, okay? This is like an easy fix if this is your, your big problem. Uh, the only letter in here that's in facsimile is from a fourth grader or third grader. In curse, uh, no. Oh, getting there, right. So you, it's there and, and you see the line, you know, they, they, they can't stand a line, the misspellings and things. And it's, uh, it, I really should read it. If you okay, just give me ahead. a second here. I really, yeah, you find another question? Yes, coming up for the next question. Oh, how many people were involved in the Pluto decision? It was yeah. a vote by the, the official decision. We came out of the box early in 2000. The official decision was six years later. That's why I got all the, all the hate mail. And then in 2006, the hate mail had to now distribute among all the people who voted. So it was several hundred people voting at an international conference. Oh, several hundred? Yeah, okay. around, around, around that number. Just to get you ready while you're looking it up, the next question is, who is your favorite beetle? <laughs> uh, and I don't think that's okay, a reference to an insect, but I'm not sure. Yeah, um, yeah do you realize I was... First, it depends how Don't this answer the beetle question. Read the letter first. Wait, wait. You don't have to assume it's an insect or the group because they spell their words differently. That, that is true, and this isn't... The Beatles is B-E-A-T. Yes, -E this is a B-E-A, so... And I was I like 25 before I figured that out. Oh. <laughs> and I said, hey, that's a clever name these Fab Four came up with for themselves. Beat. Yes, because there's a movie now. Who here didn't, also didn't know that? You didn't know that? See, it's not just me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and everyone else is lying, right? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right, now go on to reading the thing. I'm getting it. Give oh, you're second. still there. All okay, right. I'll keep going. Oh, uh, sorry, it's in the hate mail section. Yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> sorry. I just got to find it. Go While on. You're, dra you're dragging through the okay. hate mail section. Hate mail at page 75. All right. Okay. What do we do if we cannot drag? Oh, by the way, uh, I got hate mail from Moby. That's in here, too. Yes. The musician. Yes. Uh, but really, celebrities don't enter this book very often. Meanwhile, coming up is a CO2 question from Hunter. Uh, and just to give you a, so that he can just pass his way through the book. Okay, but I got it, ready? Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Fall 2006, a third grader from Peters Elementary School, Plantation, Florida. Dear scientist. <laughs> What do you call Pluto if it's not a planet anymore? If you make it a planet again, all the science books will be right. <laughs> like she's worried about the profit margins of science textbook. <laughs> she's in freaking third grade. Do people live on Pluto? If there are people who live there, then they won't exist. There's a believer in the written word. Why can't Pluto be a planet? If it's small, doesn't mean it doesn't have to be a planet anymore. Some people like Pluto. And if it doesn't exist, then they don't have a favorite planet. Please write back, but not in cursive, because I can't read cursive. Now, just to show you how ornery he can be, he then writes her a letter back, which is oh. really short. Oh, yeah. And then he, go ahead, tell me how you ended your letter to her. Okay. Sorry, that, that was just her letter to me. I thought yeah. that's all you were after. Well, here. now that you reminded me. 
because I thought, okay, what? yeah. Her name is Madeline. By the way, she's now in college in Florida majoring in environmental studies. So, so, so. Well, you had somebody look up all these? Uh, yeah, I, not, yes. You need permission oh. to use their letter. Oh, right, okay. If I use the letter. Okay. Uh, so here's, here's the full story. Okay. At the time the letter arrived in my office at the Hayden Planetarium, I was busy fielding hundreds of such letters and did not reply. But had I done so, this is what I would have said. <laughs> Dear Madeline, if anybody is living on Pluto, I assure you they still exist, even after Pluto's demotion to dwarf planet status. So no need to fear for their lives. Also, if Pluto is anybody's favorite planet, then it can simply become their favorite dwarf planet. No harm there. But in any case, you're right about the textbooks. They will all have to be changed. Bad for book buyers, but good for publishers. They get to sell you the book again. And here is my actual signature in cursive. It says, Neil D. Tyson. You gotta start somewhere. So there it is. <laughs> I like that you gotta start somewhere. <laughs> What do we do if we cannot drastically reduce our CO2 emissions within the next 11 years? What I would try to do is get everybody on the, on the job, okay, on the case. So yeah, you'd have to go to, you'd have to, go to nuclear is one solution. You'd, another thing is, I like geoengineering. That, that, it, when that comes, it won't happen soon enough. It's where you have the power to alter things like major systems of Earth structures, like weather, like you build CO2 scrubbers that filter air, take the CO2 out, bury it, put it back where it was in the first place, not in the form of fossil fuel, just some other molecule that grabs the CO2. Limestone grabs CO2, except that it takes a long time to make, right? Because it's like mm -hmm. seashells and things. Mm -hmm. so, so imagine that. Then you can burn all the oil you want. It won't matter. You just take the CO2 right out of the air. I, I want to control, we already control nature. We build dams, we build cities, we level roads. This would just be another control of nature. I, I don't have an issue with that. And you don't seem to be like doomsy about it either. Huh? Dude, what am I? Doomsy. Do, as in, doomsy? In and, up, in and of, of or associated with doomsday. Oh, doomsy. doomsy. Of like or associated. Of like or associated, yes. <laughs> doomsy. No, um, I, I, yeah, I'm doomsy. Oh. But, I, but you can be doomsy about it, but I have found that it is in a free country, it's easier to find a solution to a problem that makes economic sense to everyone than to change the minds of 100 million people. So in other words, what did it take to stop killing whales? These huge, beautiful creatures. What, was the stop killing the whale movement successful in the 1840s or 50s? You, you, you tell yourself that, but that's not why we stopped killing whales. We stopped killing whales because we found oil in the ground and we had a different source of energy where you didn't have to risk your life to get it. What an interesting thing for you to say because here you are spending all this time, pretty much your whole adult life, talking and talking and talking. And you just announced that really talking isn't anywhere near as good as engineering. Yes, correct. No, 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 no. If for solving problems. For yes. solving problems. Right. It's harder to convince people to change something that they care deeply about either financially, economically, politically, or religiously, mm -hmm. it's way harder to, to change their mind than to find an economic solution that everyone uh, gloms on So you should have gotten an MBA instead of whatever you got. Really? I'm, I'm pretty good with my astrophysics PhD. Okay. I'm in happy a, with that. In a recent uh, Star Talk episode, 
Um, you mentioned that the thing that keeps you up at night is whether or not our brain can ever understand our mind. Do you believe this will ever happen? It's hard. Hmm. Plus, there's the ethical issue. We, in principle, could do that if people would just sort of donate their living brains, you know, to be poked and prodded. But that's not how we run scientific laboratories, not legally. Would that help, do you think? Yeah, because then you can just... You just sever off the, the, the skull cap, right, and just stick probes in there and just have them think stuff up and then see what probes get lit up and what done. We can sort of do that anyway, but not as with the precision that that would involve. But that would only be like a little bit of mind. I mean, No, you just keep doing it. You do it thousands of times. But that, you know, we, why are we even talking about that experiment? That's not what anybody's going to do. The, for the mind to understand itself makes the mind a harder thing than the universe than the universe is to understand. At least the universe, I'm here and I, I can look out there. Would it be a defeat for you and the science community if it was somehow the case that certain things will remain permanently mysterious and can never be known fully? Um, yeah, it would be a defeat. Really? But, but some defeats you accept because they, they breach ethical um, boundaries. That you, you need ethics why not, why side not? by side with the progress of science, without which, you know, what, what, what are you doing? Well, then, do you, do, you, do you sort of suppose that the science community, if you give them enough time, like an eternity, if you just give minds enough time to think and cogitate, that every mystery will be understood in the end? There's a deeper problem that I lose sleep on, and it's whether even at our highest capacity of thought, are we smart enough to contemplate the deepest mysteries of the universe? Or, is, or are there mysteries of the universe? What about shallow mysteries of the universe, like falling in love or, 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 or being... Uh, uh, that's, that's scientifically tractable, I think. Oh, okay. One day we'll see this part of your brain lights up when you see something that brings affection to you. And then now we can show you something that wouldn't normally give you affection, like the underbelly of a tarantula. Then you go in and stimulate that part of the brain, and the person like falls in love with the underbelly of a tarantula. So then we got love. Look, we got okay. love figured uh, out. How, how about the, how about the real? Big, uh, I mean, big, how about up. the big, 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 big one? How come Neil Tyson, sitting all alone by himself, knows that he's Neil Tyson, feels like he's Neil Tyson? Consciousness. Yes. Yeah. So evidence that we don't know anything about consciousness is that there are books still being published saying they know what consciousness is. <laughs> That's like the greatest measure of the absence of knowledge. So, so go to a bookstore and ask, where are the books on gravity? Well, there are like four books on the shelf over there, and they're this, but we're done. We got that. We're on to the next. Where are the books on the human mind? There's shelf after consciousness explained. Ten years later, consciousness explained. <laughs> consciousness. So the more scientists publish on a subject, that is the evidence that we know very little about it. Just keep that in mind, I'm saying. In your letter to Lisa McLean, so this is a person who's read the book, you say that you don't worry about teaching your children what to think so much as how they think. Yes. What happens when the two converge, i.e. when thinking skeptically uh, but not in a goal-oriented way, leads always to the same goal, just wondering. That must have been in the philosophy chapter. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> in that chapter, the people, tell me the difference between how and why. 
what, what, what are why questions and how, and is science only about the how and not the why? Yeah. And so there's a whole section in there on this. And that one, I don't, I don't remember what I, you, you gotta read the book. I don't remember what I said in that. Okay. My name is Garvey Allen. I'm 14 years old. How do I start, start in the field of astrophysics at my age? Wants to get in early. Oh, I'm sorry, you're reading, wait, wait, you were previously reading a question from, no, no, that was a, the book, and now you got a person here. You have a 14-year-old here who wants to get into astrophysics? Yeah, now. Yeah, so start liking mathematics. Whatever was your relationship beforehand, work on it, okay? <laughs> work on it. Uh, mathematics, if, if you want to speak to people in China, you learn Mandarin or something. You want to mm -hmm. speak in Spain, you learn Spanish. You want to speak to the universe, you learn mathematics. It is the language of phenomena that unfold before us. So start there, the rest you just plug in, plug into your circuit boards that you carefully wired en route. I believe you stated one time that if you fell into a black hole, you'd be able to see the entire future of the universe. So, assuming that's true, how do you think the universe will end? Is it gonna be by a crunch or by icy death? So, if you wanna see the the, the, the end of the universe just fall into a black hole, and your time frame slows down relative to the rest of the universe, to the point where the entire future history of the universe will unfold right before your eyes. So that is the way to see the future. You just can't go back to it, because you're falling into a black hole. So. What does that mean, by the way, to see the entire future? It unfolds in front of you. It's like a, it's like a movie playing faster and faster and faster as oh, you really? fall closer and closer to the black hole. Yeah, it's, it just speeds up. And then it goes really, really fast. And you'll see the entire future history of the universe. The universe will expand, get colder and colder, asymptotically approaching absolute zero. All phenomena cease. All stars burn out one by one. The sky darkens. So the universe ends not with a bang, but with a whimper. And not in fire, but in ice. Thank you, Mr. Frost. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do you think about the rocket that is now going up in Texas? This is a rocket which will presumably go up and come down, and then you can put other rockets on it, and those rockets can go out deeper into space, so it looks like we're now getting into airplane-like rocketry. Uh, yeah, you want it, so what makes airplane, uh, 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 air travel. This is the SpaceX thing I think he's referring what, to. What makes air travel affordable is that when you fly the airplane and get off on the other side, they don't throw away the airplane. <laughs> right. They keep using it, okay? Rockets had the problem, once you use the rocket, no matter what it cost, you're throwing away pieces and bits of it and you gotta rebuild a new rocket when you're done. What SpaceX is trying to do, and I think is doing successfully, is changing that paradigm, reusing the stages of the rockets that previously were just dumped into the Pacific or into the Atlantic. So a reusable rocket launched from an airplane that already gives it a sort of a starter boost all of these are variations on our attempt to make sp access to space affordable so that it can transition from a space program to a space industry with tourists and the like. And I'm, I'm all for it. I, I have my skepticisms about 
you know, uh, 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 Elon Musk wants to send a spaceship to Mars, and I get asked, do you want to go? And I say, I'll go only after he sends his mother. Then I'll know it's safe enough, and I'll go. There is that Japanese guy who's just who's made a fortune in retail or something, and he just wants he wants to go and he wants to bring artists and he wants to bring poets and all. So that. we're 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 sort of exploring what business model would best serve the needs of space exploration. And I and I love all of these ideas. They're great, like the tourism ones. By the way, the ships that go. It's such up a weird idea. Like if Christopher Columbus had said, some rich guy say, "I really want to go across the flat water and see what's on the other side. I'll give you a." trillion ducats, let's just go and see you and me and some artists and some poets and some sailors. Like that's a, that's a model I've not really run into before. Um, okay, so someone who's rich with his money earned in that way, uh, I don't think that's how he would have spent his money. What he would have preferred to do was I will invest in you, Columbus, so that when you get there, this is basically what Queen Isabella did. Queen Isabella said, didn't say, oh, Chris, go to Go to the New World, no, go find India, and whatever you f and if you don't find it, come back and give us a slideshow of what you found and, and tell us how your trip was. No, it's, here's a satchel of flags. If you find new, new places, plant the flag in the name of Spain. There was hegemony driving that entire price and the prospect of economic return for a shorter route to the Indies, okay? And so that's how the money was moving back then. <laughs> and so if Elon wants to go to Mars, he could fund it, join together with Bezos, and Bezos got a bajillion dollars, right? Mm -hmm. That's a new number we just invented just for him, right? Uh, you can get some hundred billionaires together and do a vanity trip to Mars. But that's not what anyone has in mind when we talk about space exploration or space turning space into an industry. We're not talking about one-offs. You want this to be a routine thing. Well, here's the, this is the follow-up question. I think, what does it say on your watch? Is it 820? Oh, I think I was supposed to be done. Oh, oh. I, 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 let me keep answering questions, but shorter, and I'll get through a bunch of those. Okay. Go. What are the psychological implications if humans colonize Mars? Anxiety, spirituality, mood, conflict, food. <laughs> That's in the question? That's in the question. Okay, so, so I remember seeing movies and especially episodes of Twilight Zone when they were imagining a future where space travel was common. And they always had like one lone person in a capsule going crazy because they had no human-to-human -human contact. Mm. And I remember being a young kid saying, wow, space would be lonely and you can end up like going crazy. That's an authentic use of crazy, I think, in that context. You just go crazy with no human contact. We're, we're a social species. And then I learned, no, we're not gonna send one person anywhere. There are going to be other people in the capsule. Plus, wherever you're going, NASA is yapping at you all the time, okay? And you can bring music, and you could do, and, and I have met people who don't want to talk to anybody. There are times when I don't want to talk to anybody. Just give me a Netflix account and, a, and, a, and my music. I'll go nine months. I don't need to talk to a damn person on my way to Mars. So I think this issue about loneliness, that might be overstated. You but then you go there and you have to spend a year there, I guess, to do something. So you go in there as a colonist. Oh, you stay. Yeah, why not? All right, so or we terraform Mars first. Then you just go there and hang out. You don't have to worry about whether you can breathe the air. By the way, it is harder for us to go to Mars than it was for Christopher Columbus to come to the New World because when he landed in the New World, other humans greeted him. That's not happening on Mars, right? Plus trees in the New World are made of wood. 
just like the trees that he built his ship out of. So there's hmm. certain safety nets that existed crossing the ocean, however dangerous that was, relative to going to Mars. Well, You're going to want to terraform it. Next question. The next question is just apropos. Where should we land if we end up, on, if we go to Mars? Where should we land? So I guess that's a question like, do you land near minerals and near water? Well, so, yeah, so, so we think there's water everywhere just below the surface. Mm. Got that. Now, you want to maximize your source of energy. You'll bring solar panels. You land near the equator where you have maximum sun, sun exposure. Got that. Then you need to protect yourself from UV radiation. So you want to sit maybe near a crater wall where there's a ravine so you can dig into it to protect yourself from solar, solar storms if they happen. Mars doesn't have an ozone layer to protect it. Got that. Now you just need the funding to make it happen, and you're good. What Next three question. personal values have served you best throughout your life? And do you wish you held certain values, oh, and did you wish you had held certain values more firmly earlier in your life? I think my values came entirely from my parents, and who were sort of, sort of a moral, uh, they had moral centers in their decisions, my father, was active in the civil rights movement. My mother, a, by the way, all this is in the book. I have a testimonial to them that I wrote for their 30th wedding anniversary. And I wrote it with calligraphy on parchment. And so the, the, the transcript, transcription is in here, but I, we put a copy of the, a photo of that, of that parchment in the back. You can just see it and feel that's how I felt it when I wrote it uh, with my calligraphy pen. Uh, it honors them for their, their humility and their humanity, and the fact that my father, who would tell us stories about sort of things that would happen to him because of his skin color growing up, they were never told in a bitter way. They were just communicated as just that was the landscape of society, and what you would do is if someone, uh, if there was an affront, you would, you would roll that into something that would make you achieve even more. And he tells a story, he used to run track. There was a friend of his named Johnny Johnson who was in a track meet. They were running for the Pioneer Club against the New York Athletic Club. Oh, why weren't they in the New York Athletic Club in the 1940s? Only wasps were admitted to the New York Athletic Club. Athletic Jews and blacks ran for the Pioneer Club expressly created for that purpose. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. Johnny Johnson's running around the back strip, I think it was a quarter mile, and a runner from the Newark Athletic Club is on his heels. Johnny Johnson, my father's best friend growing up, overhears the coach of the Newark Athletic Club runner, says, yells to him, catch that nigger. This is on the final stretch. Johnny Johnson overheard this. And what did he say to himself? This is one nigga he ain't going to catch. <laughs> he ran faster and, and lengthened the thing. So today, in what most would call um, microaggressions, in, in, in an earlier time, these were forces, these were sources of energy to fuel a tank that you would use to continue to excel. And th that's in here as well in my testimony to my parents. Here, here, Next question. Last no. question. This should be the last one. What Ask two and I'll answer each and half the time. Go. What question, mystery? I did the math on that, right? Two and half the time. What question slash mystery slash unknown do you have, do you hope to answer before you die? By the way, you are my hero and can I have a photo? <laughs> <laughs> little transaction. Um, so yeah, I have some, yeah, yeah, I wanna know how we went from organic molecules to self-replicating life. 
that's, that's a frontier of biology. There's some progress there, but still, only if we can really reproduce that in a lab will I know that we know what we're doing there. Earth apparently did it quickly. Within 100 million years, we went from or quick for Earth. If you're four and a half billion years old, 100 million is like that. So I, that's a frontier I, I want to know. The, I want to know what dark matter is. It's 85% of the gravity of the universe has no known origin. That's, it's, it's the longest unsolved problem in astrophysics, been with us since 1936. I want to know what dark energy is, this mysterious pressure in the vacuum of space, making the universe accelerate in its expansion against the wishes, the collective wishes of the galaxies, of gravity from the galaxy. I don't yeah, know. It's a kind of a, there's a Hubble constant thing going on right now, right? That's it's just minor. I'm not worried about it. Okay. Okay. So, so I, I'm, maybe one day I should be. Right now, I'm not. Okay. So, these are profound. What was around before the Big Bang? These are frontiers of science. And you will find in this book, because there's at least a dozen out of 101 questions of people who come from religious traditions wanting to find out, can they reconcile God and science? And there's, most of those are Christians, they're Jews, one of the letters I read, a Muslim, a, 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 a Buddhist, mm -hmm. and they're all kind of coming at the same questions in the same way. And all I'm saying is that these profound areas of ignorance, I find that religious people gravitate to it as a place to insert God. I say, I don't know what was around before the universe. Well, God was there. God made it. I don't know how we went from organic molecules to subreplicated life. Well, God stepped in and made that miracle. They call that God of the gaps. The God of the gaps, right. Yeah. So there's a whole conversations in here exploring why the brain wants to do that, what's motivating it, and why the doesn't, scientist doesn't yours? Why the scientist, at the end of the day, needs to be content in the questions themselves, mm. because not all answers are just there for us. We have to work for it. We have to claw through the area of knowledge that our species has generated. But as the area of that knowledge grows, so too does the perimeter of our ignorance. And it is that boundary that any productive research scientist finds themselves. So you have to stare out into the abyss of the unknown and smile. <laughs> <laughs> that was like a coda, right? And you want one more. Give me, give me one more. One more. And I'll codify that. You are terrible at getting faster, by the way. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. Connor, an NYU student, says, what is the most needed change to the U.S. education system? You do I will so end on that question. Oh, really? Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Um, quickly, one of my more controversial tweets, I, I, by the way, I hardly ever tweet opinions. They're just objective statements, and then people react. <laughs> it reminds me of Harry S. Truman, give him hell Harry, mm -hmm. the president, right? And they, people, a journalist asked him, Harry, why are you always giving people hell? And you know what he said? What? He said, I'm just giving them the truth. They think it's hell. <laughs> so one of the tweets was, students who earn straight A's do so not because of good teachers, but in spite of bad teachers. That is a logically true statement. And but people were outraged. I don't, I don't even understand what that means. 
that was the problem. So I learned that that juxtaposition of words communicating that information was very hard for people to grasp. And so I regretted that, because not, I'm not trying to be obtuse, I'm trying to communicate. But what upset me most was that the loudest people who didn't understand the sentence were teachers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, big surprise there. It sounds like- The point is, if you're a good student, and you get straight A's, you got an A when you had a bad teacher. So therefore, the fact that you had an A with a good teacher was irrelevant, because you're getting an A no matter who your teacher is. Another category of student are students who, who are like in the middle, and they need a good teacher to learn. So they'll get high grades with a good teacher and low grades with a bad teacher. Then you have the crappy students who get bad grades no matter how good the teacher is. So if you get straight A's, you're getting them not because of the good teachers, but in spite of having had a bad teacher. This is just the facts. And people, got, people lost their minds over that tweet. My point is, we all reflecting on how many teachers we've had in our lives. I bet, and we only just met, I bet is no more than this many, three, at most four, of all the teachers you ever had in your life who've had an important influence on who and what you became. Tell, wait, tell, tell me, how, how, many is it, how many is it just one teacher in your life? Raise your hand. Okay, two teachers. Three teachers. Four teachers. Okay, five teachers. Whoa, I got three people here. That is rare. I want you to know how rare that is. But it's still a small number against how many total teachers you've probably had in your life. My point is, every teacher should do that exercise with themselves and say, I want to be that teacher. I want to be the teacher that has a singular influence on my students. And it's, by the way, it's normally the same teacher that people are pointing to. Hey, that's my first point. Second. Your first point. It's quick. What oh, did it's I do that so quick? quick. Yeah. Second. We keep thinking that education is the filling of an empty vessel rather than the ignition of a flame of curiosity. Why else would you run down the steps on the last day of school, throw your books in the air and say, school's out? There's even a rock song that celebrates this from, what's the guy's name? Um, Alice Cooper, school's out forever. It's a song that people dance to. And, and so, so why is that when your only job was to learn? It's because in school you're not being taught curiosity. You're not being taught, you're not enjoying what you're learning, it is a chore. And if, if somehow ambition and curiosity can be encoded in the curriculum, you'll be sad on the last day of school. Or when you graduate and you attend the commencement, which means the beginning, of course, as a word, that is the beginning of a life of learning for you. And school was just a launch pad for it not a point where your knowledge ossifies in place. Now you don't have to learn anymore. You want to change education, you do that. And, that, and you can transform the world overnight. Are we done? <laughs> yes. Uh. Everybody here gets a book for free as you leave. The book will be waiting for you. Just go, it's, I think they're going to be out there for you. 
Uh, the other thing is actually in that coda, that final thing, if you go back to the book, there is a letter that he writes to the head, I guess of the, of the principal of Brooklyn's, of Bronx science, about his daughter. That's your alma mater? Just it is my alma mater, yeah. yeah. Yeah, in which this very question comes up. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, the well, question how you, how you yeah, learn. Don't, don't do that. Oh. We just say goodbye now. Thank you all very much for coming. <laughs> goodbye. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.